I love to read cookbooks as bedtime stories because they always have happy endings. What comes to mind when you think of cookbooks? Is it a beautifully bound, almost coffee table-like book with tantalizing images of the recipes? Or maybe a food-stained, dog-eared classic like The Joy of Cooking? I bet you don't think of a piece of fiction, a book with a beginning, a middle, and an end that uses recipes interspersed with narrative to help illustrate and support the story of a community and its members. And yet that is the basis of community cookbooks. You know, those comb-bound cookbooks that play host to myriad recipes from varied contributors. Not professional chefs, not cookbook authors, just everyday cooks. Moms, aunts, grandmas, sisters, sometimes dads, uncles, grandpas, and brothers. A collection of recipes from a community. This is the type of cookbook that inspired writer, artist, and food lover Matt Terrell to create his fictional cookbook, The Magnolia Bayou Country Club Ladies Auxiliary Cooking and Entertaining Book. I have a pile of these community and church cookbooks, and as I've read them, I've discovered they are wonderful ways to really understand a people, a place, and a culture through the food, through the ingredients, through the recipes, and also how these people write about them. Welcome to the Heritage Cookbook Project podcast, where we document and preserve heritage by connecting with cooks across the country who share food memories, family recipes, and a little bit about themselves. And I'm your host, Leigh Olson. I am a Southerner by birth, and I've lived most of my life um, in the South. And my experience of the South has always been quite multicultural and diverse. I really wanted to represent that in the cookbook. And so that was the starting point for picking these characters. The founders of Magnolia Bayou are an African-American man and a Jewish woman who wanted to live in a upscale community that accepted everyone. And so they decided to build Magnolia Bayou themselves. Hattie May, the wife, was an internationally traveling opera singer. And when she would go around the world in Barcelona and in Vienna and in Sydney and New Orleans and San Francisco, she would just give all these wonderful stories about Magnolia Bayou. And that's how they got all these people from around the world to move there. There's a particular thing about Southern cuisine in that it's quite absorptive, which means that it can bring in the flavors, techniques, and ingredients from all these other parts of the world, but still be distinctly Southern. And so that was also one of the reasons why I wanted to have such an international and eclectic group of people. They're all cooking Southern food but with their own influences and their own lens of what they cook, but done in the new world. And I think that's really representative of how the world is. That is the history of the world on a plate right there. One of the most important aspects of this book is that I wanted it to look and feel exactly like those church and community fundraiser cookbooks. They have a distinct style where lots of people are contributing recipes to them. They've got little quirks in them. Perhaps they've got some backstory about the church or the community, 
They've got some stories from the individuals. Some of them have ads in there. And above all, they have plastic comb binding. So I put all of these aspects into the Magnolia Bayou cookbook. We've got lots of backstories about how the community was built. We've made up all these different companies. Uh, there's even a real estate agent who will tell you how to buy your own home in Magnolia Bayou. They've got uh, restaurants in there with ads for them. The recipes themselves, they're a combination of three different things. My own original recipes, recipes from my family. I looked at the most delicious things that I make and my family makes, and those go in first. And then the third grouping of recipes are from traditional or famous cookbooks from the South. I decided what are historical and significant recipes that can tell the story of Magnolia Bayou and can tell the story of the people and the specific characters. And I think a really great example of it is this recipe called Cheese Salad Sherbert, where it was in the Gasparilla cookbook, and it's basically blue cheese ice cream served as a salad over shredded lettuce in the original recipe. And I, I, I put a note on it, and I was like, this idea of Roquefort blue cheese ice cream is very interesting, but definitely not as a salad. And I said to my food editor, can you figure out how to make this a dessert? And what she did was she took the idea of the blue cheese ice cream and combined it with red wine poached pear and pistachio nuts. And it is so phenomenally delicious. I was so happy and proud of that recipe. And I think it's really emblematic of what this cookbook does. Gumbo recipe, the king cake recipe, the jambalaya recipe, it really all comes from that tradition of growing up on the Gulf Coast. One character, Violette Gaucher, I grew up in the town of Gaucher, so that's why I, I called her Violette Gaucher, is a Creole woman. Most of her recipes are actually my family's recipes. One of Matt's family recipes that captured my attention was chicken and dumplings. Not because it was reminiscent of a family recipe. No, these dumplings in this recipe are nothing like the dumplings that I grew up with. More on that later. But because Lillian Conley, a fictional uptight, blue-haired Southern lady that submitted the recipe, and I share a similar experience with well water that you could describe as particularly unpleasant. The preamble that she penned for the recipe is called The Reason I Put So Much Pepper in My Chicken and Dumplings. The story chronicles the changes made to the recipe as time marched on. But there's one ingredient that stays constant, even though the original condition responsible for the ample quantity of this ingredient no longer exists. This recipe is a real recipe, and the story behind it is a fictional story based on real elements of real life from my family. My mom makes chicken and dumplings, and I make chicken and dumplings, and it has a lot of pepper in it. And she's not someone who like loves spicy food, but for some reason, she puts like over a tablespoon of pepper in the chicken and dumplings. And so as the writer, my idea was to figure out why on earth does this recipe have so much pepper in it? And this is actually based upon going to my grandmother's house. And at my grandmother's house, uh, everything that she cooks with the water from her well smelled like sulfur. She didn't really have a lot of seasonings, but she had a lot of black pepper. 
Um, and black pepper can cover up the taste of sulfur pretty well. It actually kind of tastes pretty good with sulfur. And so that was the jumping off point of putting so much pepper in the chicken and dumplings. The recipe does progress through time. It starts off with talking about, you know, having to kill a chicken for it. And then daddy gets a job at the factory that's built down the road. And then we get a Piggly Wiggly. And so we've got bouillon cubes that come in. And then we've got prepackaged chicken. And that changes the recipe a little bit. And then the recipe gets to modern day. And the recipe writer Lillian Connolly is reflecting upon how it's changed. Now, she doesn't have the well water because the county came in and put a pipe uh, in, and now they've got fresh water from the county. It doesn't smell like sulfur anymore, but she's still putting the pepper in. Uh, And then she specifically mentions there is a certain flavor of the cast iron pot that grandma would cook the chicken and dumplings in, and she's trying to figure out, well, how do I recreate that flavor? And she decides... You know, fry a little bit of onion and bacon grease, and that will give you that sort of like deep set in flavor of the cast iron skillet. And so the recipe really does follow a progression of probably about 50 to 75 years of this person's family history and how the ingredients and the techniques have changed and come to modern day. But it's also a reflection on how life changed living on the farm over over decades. I always grew up with flat dumplings, which is more like a almost like a pasta. This is opposed to the puffy dumplings, which have um, they're a lot more wet. They have um, some baking powder in them. They are kind of puffy and amorphous. I've never really cared for that style of dumpling personally, and so that's why it was really important for me to have that flat style. And that's actually. A, a big indicator of where your people came from in the South, whether they came um, from Scotland, England area, or Germanic areas. The Germanic people that came to the South cooked the puffy dumplings. And then the English and Scottish people who came to the South, they cooked the flat dumplings. Oftentimes we don't realize that the recipes that we've been handed down to hold the history of our ancestors and where they came from. What were the the limitations of seasonality that they had? What were the ingredients they had or did not have? What were the religious and cultural boundaries that changed their recipes? That's something that I think is really interesting that you can look into your family recipes and almost connect with your ancestors through the ingredients, techniques, and presentation of what you've been handed. It's just like oral history. This this is how you transmit knowledge of who you are and where your people have come from. After the break, Matt talks about community, how recipes connect us to our ancestors, and the stories a cookbook can tell about its owner. This episode of the Heritage Cookbook Project podcast is supported by Bob's Red Mill. When you're making those treasured family recipes, don't leave the quality of your ingredients to chance. Visit bobsredmill.com to find out more about this employee-owned company, their products, and how you can fill your pantry with them. With their products, not their employees. 
The way that this cookbook came together was not unlike the compilation of the community cookbooks that it was fashioned after. Essentially, it took a community. I had a group of SCAD students, Savannah College of Art and Design students, who were helping me with this. I could not have brought this project to life without SCAD. One of the wonderful programs that they have is called the Alumni Atelier. Uh, and this is funded by President Paula Wallace, the founder of SCAD, to provide alumni seed funding for these outside-the-box projects that they just need a jump start. I formed a team of three, Rachel and Lila and Catherine. Uh, Rachel was my food editor. Lila was my managing editor and book uh, designer. And Catherine was my illustrator. And I really just gave her free reign to do what she wanted. We looked through a lot of these old cookbooks and we found what are these il illustrative elements from these traditional cookbooks. So for example, lots of sort of like borders that are uh, around like introductory pages with like flourishes and fleur-de-lis and expressive drawings of like certain dishes like salads and soups and stews and desserts. Each section has its own uh, illustrations, and some of them are just, like, so beautiful. The cover for desserts features three famous uh, recipes from the dessert section, uh, which are a, uh, a monster cookie, a pound cake, and then one of our favorites was pink champagne jello with raspberries inside of it. So she was able to capture all of these sort of elements in her illustrations. Together, we put together this... 340-page book in six months. The, the final product is almost a little too real. <laughs> um, I, I, each, each copy I've stuffed with um, newspaper clippings and handwritten note cards and all these other items. That's one of my favorite aspects of getting these old cookbooks is when you have marginalia in there, when you have a note card in there with a, um, like a biscuit or a soup recipe. Those are real treasures. And so what I was thinking about with this cookbook is that this is not just a cookbook, but you are receiving someone's cookbook. And so the items stuffed into the cookbook actually continue the story outside of the, the book itself. Um, and so if you look through the clippings, if you look through the recipe cards, if you look through the handwritten materials I've stuffed in there, you're going to learn what happens to the person who owned that cookbook after it was published. It really tells the story on these multiple levels in a way that is just so personal and it feels very real. I've had multiple people come back to me and say, I, I think you left something personal <laughs> in these cookbooks. I was like, oh no, look through them, read them, and then you'll you'll understand what story that, that it tells. You will get a full story of the people and place of Magnolia Bayou. It has a lot of heart to it, and it has a lot of drama and story that you can get from a fiction book, but this is a cookbook, and the recipes are good. They are real, modern, delicious food that is Southern, but also reflects upon the multicultural heritage of the South and how the world is changing and becoming smaller through food.
At this time, we would like to thank the members of the Ladies Auxiliary. By thanking them individually, we not only reflect upon their hard work, but also upon all they give to the Ladies Auxiliary through their loyal membership and rich personal history. Mrs. Lillian Conley and Mr. Charles Conley, we extend our warmest thanks to the matriarch of the Ladies Auxiliary and her husband. Thank you for all your editing, hard work, and disturbingly in-depth stories. Duquesa Infanta Maria Teresa Pantabla de Barcelona y Andura. Thank you for all your editing, beautiful recipes, and allowing us to put you second on this list instead of first. Your humility and desire to help those less fortunate is always inspiring. Kitty Conway. Thank you for all your delicious drink recipes and for staying sober during the editing process. We understand how difficult this must have been and value your contribution. Dr. Elaine Punjabi and Dr. Sid Punjabi, thank you for taking care of our little community and for explaining to each of us in depth which Ayurvedic tea we needed to drink. We likewise greatly appreciate your accepting canned preserves and fresh chicken eggs for your copays. Colonel Text Crawford, USA Retired, and Daryl Willis, thank you for your beautiful flower arrangements and delicious finger foods, which helped us get through the long nights editing this cookbook. Ms. Justine Conley, thank you for reminding us of our privileges and attempting to keep us woke. We're still not entirely sure what that means, but we are nonetheless appreciative. Poinsette, Arabelle, Fontainebleau, and Violette Gaucher. Thank you for all the delicious smells you put into our kitchen and all the spices you have put into our pots. Kimber Park Jones, thank you for all your hard work editing and compiling this beautiful cookbook. We know your grandfather, our founding father, would be proud of all that you have done. I hope you enjoyed listening to Matt's story about the creation of his cookbook, about community, and about Southern culinary heritage. And if you'd like to purchase your copy of the Magnolia Bayou Ladies Auxiliary Cooking and Entertaining Book, head over to magnoliabayoucookbook.com. And if you want to hear more stories like this, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could take five minutes away from the puffy versus flat dumpling debate and leave a rating and review, it'll help me reach more people like you who love stories about food. The full recipe for Lillian Conley's chicken and dumplings can be found at theheritagecookbookproject.com. And don't forget to register for access to the printable cookbook pages. Cheers! Oh, and my Magnolia Bayou cookbook was previously owned by Kimber Park Jones, the founder's granddaughter. It tells a story of generosity, family, and connection. The Heritage Cookbook Project podcast is produced and edited by me. I'm Leigh Olson. Sound design and mixing? Also by me. The music credit for this episode for the operatic clip Habanero is by Kevin McLeod.